Chemie. Um, unfortunately, I have to say the book will be in German, so. Ah. <laughs> but I plan also to write some articles, so maybe you will uh, have more to read there. As you see, I will talk on Japan's immigration policy and uh, concentrate on the period between 1999 and 2008 and actually pose a little bit of question of the discrepancy between the whole debate that was going on, the huge uh, proposals that were made, and the very partial reforms we had. Basically, not much happened, and why is this the case? So this is a bit the question, which I will come back. Let me start with the introduction, Japan as a new immigration country, which I guess many of you, or most probably all, know already. Japan for a long time has been really a prime example in post-war period as a non-immigration country. Basically a country which had no significant immigration. Of course there were foreign residents, as you can see here uh, in this statistic, but they were all immigrants who had come to Japan during the colonial period, most of them from Korea but also some from Taiwan, and the foreign residents were basically these immigrants and their descendants. And the number of foreign residents increased a little bit with the growth of this population, but basically there was no new immigration. This was the so-called old commerce, how they called in Japanese literature. Now, in the late 1980s, as you can see in this statistic, however, things started to change. All of a sudden, the numbers of registered foreign residents starts to increase more because we have new immigration happening in Japan. Uh, actually, we can even say that uh, this statistic underrates the new immigration because actually the old commerce, the number is going back because more and more of them uh, are becoming Japanese citizens. So they're falling out of these statistics. So what you can see here is from the late 1980s, we could say it's a turning point. Japan becomes an immigration country. Of course, you can say still today, Japan has about 2.1 million foreign residents which is about 1.7% of the whole population, so still very small, we would say, small foreign population in Japan. But if you look in the absolute numbers, and you look at the OECD data, you will see that actually today Japan is one of the important immigration destinations among the, most, uh, the more developed economies. So there is really quite a large number of immigrants coming in every year of about 60 to 70,000. What is maybe also surprising if you look at this statistic is this is basically a linear uh, development. So actually we would most probably, uh, if we think on the economic development, expect that we have more immigrants during the public years, then emigration goes back with the economic stagnation, the lost decade, and that maybe between 2003 and 2008 when the economy picks up, again we have more increase. But what we really see is that we had really a continuous immigration happening in Japan. Which also means what makes Japan today also an immigration country is that during the 1990s there were crucial changes in the labor market, position of the foreign immigrants, and today it's also the Japanese uh, export industries who are structurally dependent on foreign workers. So we can really say foreign workers become a crucial part of the labor market uh, of the labor force in Japan, although I have no time today to go into details of this. Well, you can of course also see in the last five years we have a little bit less increases specifically due to the economic uh, problems from 2008 onwards, where actually some immigrants also returned back, as we may see also later on. Now, this new immigration led also to 
discussions to debates in Japan. And here we have a very general uh, indicator for this. This is the number of newspaper articles on immigration from 1985 to 2011 uh, in three newspapers, Asahi Shimbun, Nihon Shimbun, and Yomiyori Shimbun. And as you can see, as the new immigration starts, the newcomers are coming in, as they are called in the late 1980s, all of a sudden, basically the number of articles on immigration kind of skyrocketed in Japan. We have a huge increase. And this specifically during the public period. Then in the early 1990s, with the economic recession, who moves in with economic problems, immigration recedes as a problem. It comes back to a certain degree in the late 1990s, as then it picks up again, and specifically from 2005 onwards. This is again a more important topic in public discussion in Japan. So basically what we can say from public discussion, we have two debates, or two periods of debates in Japan, one around the year 1990, and one from the late 1990s, or specifically more from also specifically from 2004-05 onwards, which really immigration is a topic. This we can also see on the policy-making level. Uh, these are the number of reform proposals in immigration policy from 1984-2008. And as you can see, first again, in the first period from 84 to 88, we had five proposals. They are basically all from the late uh, second half of the 1980s. So a small number of proposals made in immigration policy. This picks then up around the year 1990 with the public debate, increasing new proposals. However, we see out here very clearly this period from 94 to 98 where we had basically no proposals in immigration policy. Immigration policy is no longer a topic. It's falling out of the political agenda. And we see, however, the return of immigration as a topic in the late 1990s and for most of all from 2004 to 2008, where we have in these uh, five years 34 proposals. And these are really proposals means uh, really substantial proposals. So normally papers of 20 pages or more where really at least part of the immigration policies made a, a really significant proposal for a reform. So we can basically say every two months, every second month, a ministry, a politician group, or an interest group puts out a paper on immigration policy in this period. So there's a huge debate. And of course, if we compare these two periods, we see also, while the first period around the 1990s was much more public debate, immigration was a new topic, was a new discussion point, specifically also then from the early 1990s where immigration became really also visible in Japan, when we had the Iranian uh, immigrants who went to Harajuku and other public parks on Sundays in Tokyo, and all of a sudden you could see there are new immigrants, and this started the whole discussion. While in the second period, we have also public discussions, but we have much more discussions among the policymakers. So there's a little bit of difference that we could say the second period is more uh, really heated debate among policymakers in policy circles. Good. Now, just to clarify what I'm going to talk today uh, here, uh, first point maybe if I speak here the whole time about immigration policy, I have to say that you can basically divide immigration policy in two areas. One is what we could call the border control policy. So the question, who does the government let in, with which visa, can he work, how long can he stay, etc., etc. 
And the second, we could call very generally integration policy. So what for policy are taking for the foreign residents staying in the country, uh, multicultural integration, assimilation policy, etc., etc. Now what I will talk today is basically only border control policy because up to 2009, there was no integration policy in Japan on the government level. There was some integration policy on the local level, but not on the governmental level. And only since 2009, actually, we have a small office inside of the cabinet secretariat who is thinking about immigration policy in the meaning of integration policy and coordinating more the efforts on the local level. So what we really look at is the question of border control. So how should Japan manage its border concerning letting uh, foreign people in? And the main focus in the Japan's immigration debates, the first and the second one, is actually the question of accepting non-highly skilled foreign workers. So what is basically generally an agreement, we could say, in Japan is that Japan needs to accept highly skilled workers. There has also been several efforts to increase the numbers, although they have not been that successful. But the real question was, which was always debated, what about the non-highly skilled workers? Now here maybe I have to say how the Japanese uh, immigration law is. Uh, the Japanese immigration law is very clear at this point. It has uh, a cert defines a certain number of professional of professions where foreigners can come in and work in Japan. And in all other jobs, basically foreigners are excluded to get a working visa for Japan. So this is how the immigration law is basically constructed. As we will see later on, there are some exemptions, however, important exemptions. But basically, we could say we have a positive list in the immigration law, which says who is highly skilled. That's also why I use this term of non-highly skilled worker, because uh, basically, of course, also other people actually are quite skilled, which are not in uh, part of this list. In Japan, normally, this question is also always about tanjun rodosha, so simple workers. But I think this is, again, much too simple how the discourse goes. Now, what I want to really look at then is at the question, why do we have this discrepancy? On the one side, and especially from 2004 to 8, we have the second debate. We have, I would even say, revolutionary reform proposals. But we have a general standstill. Not too much happens. So there is no comprehensive reform regarding non-highly skilled foreign workers, although we have these huge discussions, we have this huge number of proposals, of which some are really going very far. However, and this makes the point more interesting, we have some reforms during this period, limited and partial reforms. The two most important ones are a more restrictive policy concerning entertainer visa. We get back later what entertainer visa means and foreign health workers part of the economic partnership agreements. An interesting part is also actually especially entertainer visa, they were never part of the public discussion or the discussion among the policymakers. So actually we have some reform, but not really on what is discussed actually. So it's getting a puzzle here. So the question is why do we have a channel standstill in immigration policy despite this comprehensive reform, uh, debates and reform proposals and which other factors lead to these reforms we actually have in some parts of immigration policy although actually this is not really what is discussed about in public or among policymakers in uh, the second debate. Now my findings to sum up I would say uh, the following. 
What we see in the second immigration debate is that we have new main policy actors compared to the first immigration debate. We have also a new perception of immigration, a new discourse about immigration, also no new discussion of immigration in Japan. But the policy process is still marked by a durational and institutional fragmentation, which means uh, there are many actors which are looking at immigration from a completely different point of view and which are not able to reach a consensus. Actually, they lead to a general standstill, to a general immobility in immigration policy. However, in certain areas, there were overriding goals uh, in other policy fields which resulted in the reforms we have in the immigration policy. So that's how we can explain why we have a discussion, a huge discussion on general, on new proposals on non-highly skilled workers, but we have de facto no reform at all. But we have some reforms in other areas which were not that much discussed because actually these reforms are due to overriding goals in other policy fields. So let me start first with fragmentation and immobility, what I already mentioned in Japanese politics, and I will take the first immigration debate around the 1990 as a case study to look at this. Uh, to sum up very uh, quick, um, there has been noted in the literature discrepancy in Japanese politics between sometimes innovative reforms in some policy fields and the general immobility in other policy fields. Now, this is explained by the institutional framework, or explained at least by some researchers, by the institutional framework of policymaking, which has said we have this very strong vertical integration of ministry and also the very clear delimitation of ministerial policy fields. We have in Japan this Seichi Hoso, we have laws which actually define which ministry is in charge of which policy field, and it's not so easy also to change this. You have to make a new law, you have to go to the parliament for this. So there's a very clear differentiation. Also, bureaucrats normally go through internal careers in one ministry and do not change between the ministries. So there's not too much cooperation and coordination between the ministries. The second factor is also that due to the long-staying power of the LDP, we have basically, we could say, the same structure also on the side of the LDP, especially if we get in the Policy Advisory Research Council, which is basically with the same commissions as the ministries which are working together with the ministries, but not as much working in between the commissions. And also with lobby politicians, Tsokugin, and the interest groups behind them, which are also attached to certain policy fields which then means uh, we have very strong groups in certain policy fields, and what's often also said that the prime minister, the ministers, and the cabinet as executive often have only marginal importance in policy making. Much more importance are the Tsokugin, are the ministry, the bureaucrats, and the interest groups which are working in a certain policy field. This sometimes works, of course, very good, as long as you stay in your policy field, but it becomes a problem uh, because you have very deficits in cooperation coordination and sometimes even open conflicts, especially when you have a policy fields where you have different ministries who have interest in. And, uh, well, the famous maybe example in the literature is the so-called telecom war in the late 1980s when the ministry, uh, the media started to be interested in the telecommunication sector, which, however, was a policy field of the Ministry of Telecommunication and which resulted then in a huge conflict between the two ministries who was actually in charge of doing policies in this field. Now, the point is, I think we can say the same thing on immigration also if we look at the first immigration debate. As we saw before, we, in the late 1980s, we have new immigration movements, 
and we have them specifically because of two reasons, <coughs> simplify. One is Japan experienced again at this time labor shortage due to the economic boom uh, during the bubble era, especially in the construction industry, but also small and medium enterprises. So there's really need for more labor, we could say, there are open jobs. However, and this is very important to see also a second factor plays in, Japan is also at this time embedded in a new East Asian migration region. To explain this, if you look at the labor market only, and you compare the late 1980s with the 1970s, early 1970s, late 1960s, you actually see that we have a more severe labor shortage in the late 1960s, early 1970s in Japan, at the end of the high growth area, than in the late 1980s. So from a labor market perspective, you would expect that immigration starts already in the late 1960s. Actually, there was already a debate at the time to open up Japan for foreign labor, which, however, never uh, was realized at the time, as also later on. However, what is new in the late 1980s is that Japan is no longer, as around the 1970s, an isolated country in a non-migration region, because during 1970s, 60s, 1970s, not only Japan does not experience immigration, but in whole East Asia, you don't have large immigration movements. <laughs> migration really starts only from the late 1960s when the United States and the other new countries uh, in the New World started to open up the immigration policy for Asian, and also when uh, in the Near East, due to the rising uh, oil price, they had huge infrastructure programs and the needed foreign labor guest worker programs. That's when immigration started again first from East Asia into those other regions, and then with economic development also from the 1970s and 80s onwards in East Asia itself. Secondly, of course, also Japan is much more integrated into the region in the late 1980s. It has much more foreign direct investment. We have much more Japanese products in the markets uh, locally. Uh, we have Japan, who is now the biggest donor in uh, overseas development and late, etc. So we have much more connections. So when Japan experienced again a labor shortage in the late 1980s, it results in irregular immigration. So it's not Japan changing its immigration policy, but irregular immigration starts due to the structural change. And because of this, of course, we had a very reactive debate in the first immigration debate in Japan. How should Japan react in view of this new irregular immigration coming to Japan? The dominant perspective in this first uh, immigration debate was, on the one hand, foreign policy. So the question, what is the duty of Japan as a member of East Asia vis-à-vis -vis this developing country? What should it do? Especially the Minister of Foreign Affairs took this position. And that answer was it should open up the labor market to help these countries to develop. It's what advanced economies always had to do in history, was, was the argument of the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And on the other side, of course, labor market perspective. What happens if we bring in especially, let's say, simple workers or non-highly skilled foreign workers? What will be the effects in the Japanese labor market for Japanese workers, etc.? Cultural identity and national security were at the time of secondary importance in the debate. Of course, I'm simplifying here very strongly in the short time. What emerged then were actually political coalitions in immigration policy, and which, as often immigration policy, we could say coalitions of strange platforms. So actually policy actors which are normally not in the same camp. In favor of opening up the labor market for non-highly skilled foreign workers was the Economic Planning Agency, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Business Association of Small and, uh, Small and Medium Enterprises, and the Japanese Communist Party. Not in favor of opening up was the Ministry of Justice, who was officially in charge of immigration policy, the Ministry of Labor, 
Nikerens, or the uh, Employer Association, and the labor unions, the large ones. What you also see is we have also some actors which are actually absent in this whole debate, specifically the important parties, the LDP and the socialists. And this is because they were actually split internally on the issue. If you look, for example, at the LDP, you had on one side those politicians who were very near small and medium enterprise or the construction industry, they were in favor of opening up Japan for foreign workers, while those uh, who were not so near small and medium enterprise or the construction industry from a more cultural, nationalist perspective were not in favor of opening up the labor market for foreign workers. Also, KDANREN, the most influential business organization, it basically never published a paper on immigration during the first debate, only at the very end, in 1993, it published its first paper taking position. And also, uh, the MITI, so the economic ministry, also not really taking position, because also there we have a split internally between different sections. Now, what you would, of course, expect, maybe, is then really a competition between these two coalitions. However, what happened was not only competition between these two coalitions, but also a huge fight inside of the coalition against immigration. To sum up very quickly, we can say the pro-immigration coalition was not strong enough without the support of the LDP and the KDANREN to really push through their own agenda. So those who argued in favor of opening up the labor market for non-highly skilled foreign workers had basically not a chance to realize that because they had not the support of the LDP and the KDANREN. However, what happened among those who were not in favor of opening the labor market, there was a fierce and open conflict between the Ministry of Justice and the Ministry of Labor. And the reason was that the Minister of Justice, who was officially in charge of immigration policy, actually, uh, in his, his view, actually, uh, the Minister of Labor kind of invaded his sphere of authority, specifically with his proposal of an employer permit system. So what the Minister of Labor uh, uh, proposed was to really control immigration. We don't need to uh, try to control the immigrants themselves, because there are a large number of irregular immigrants. We can't control them. What we can control, however, is employers. They need new employer permit system to employ foreign workers. So that's what we can control. However, they wanted to realize that with their own offices, and the Minister of Justice saw that as an invasion into their territory of immigration policy. Though there was a huge debate and a clash in public between these two ministries, although they had quite similar positions. What then resulted was a very complex interwinded policy-making process, which in the end, to sum up things very shortly, uh, led to a reform of the immigration law. Very important there that we had new uh, an extension of these uh, defined professions where foreign workers could work in Japan, but also an exception, an exceptional treatment of the so-called Nikkeijin, so of Japanese emigrants and their descendants up to the third generation, which were allowed with the new reform, with the new law, to come back to Japan, to stay in Japan, officially to visit Japan, and also to be able to work in Japan in any job. So there we have an important exception. And the second thing that happened then in the early 1990s was a re-enlargement and remodeling of the foreign trainee programs. There always had been a foreign trainee program, so the idea, this was part actually of the overseas developmental aid to bring in people from East Asia and other countries to Japan to train them and send them back as a uh, kind of help for them uh, for the development of these countries. What now happened in the early 1990s is that this was strongly enlarged and remodeled. Basically what came out was a kind of guest worker program in certain areas. 
which restrict regulation, but still, I would say, a guest worker program, which no longer had the main goal to help French workers. And this result was actually really this intertwined complex policy-making process between the two groups, and specifically also because of the conflict between the Ministry of Justice and the Ministry of Labor, which gave, of course, those who were in favor of opening up the labor market again and again possibilities in the policy process to tap in into this conflict and to position themselves and their ideas. So this is to sum up the first immigration uh, debate. What we can see, however, this was not the only field where this happened, as I said before, and there was a debate also on political reforms in Japan going on, and specifically in the 1990s. There was an increasingly demands for political reforms because of the economic stagnation, because of bureaucratic scandals, because of the view that the state had basically failed after the Kobe earthquake uh, had not helped fast enough the victims. So what happened, important reform here was the administration political reforms of 1997 to 2001, which was on one side realignment and reduction of the ministries from 23 to 13 in Japan, in Japan uh, was also strengthening of guidelines of competences of the prime minister and the cabinet. So what was tried was really to centralize more the policy-making process to give the prime minister more possibilities to really shape policy-making so also to overcome this coordination and cooperation problems between the ministry, and also the increase of the staff of the cabinet secretary and new advisory councils of the prime minister. What was also introduced at the time were new parliamentarian vice ministers and state secretaries. Was also the idea was before you had only the, basically the minister was sent out by the prime minister into the ministry and was always said he's kind of a galleon figure, but not really forming the policy of this ministry. Now it was hoped when we send out several politicians that they can form a group and really at least uh, form the strategy of the ministry, the long-term policy, so that politicians should gain more influence in policy making and the centralization also of policy making was simply set the basic goal here. <coughs> what research then shows is that there is a certain potential for stronger leadership by the Prime Minister and Cabinet but it has not been realized or only realized in a few fields, actually, in recent years in Japan. Good. This is the background of this reform now for the second immigration debate uh, and for this general standstill and partial reforms we had from the late 1990s onwards. Let me first start the new debate that starts in the late 1990s. Important is here we have basically new main perspectives. And of course, I'm again simplifying due to time constraints, but also to bring it up to the point, the kind of. Pro-immigration was really seen from a point of view of demographic and economic development. So what we had in the late 1990s were new demographic projections for Japan. Projections who actually had the completely new results, which uh, foresaw that Japan would have huge problems, uh, sinking population, sinking labor uh, workers also in the coming years, and that fertility would not pick up again as it always foreseen up to the late 1990s. So what was there was actually the demand came up for an active immigration policy in view of these future labor shortages. It was not on the time itself that Japan had a worker shortage, but it was foreseen that Japan would have one and that Japan should act now in the long term to do something against this demographic trend and uh, the accompanying uh, economic developments. 
So we can say what changed here is that immigration policy was no longer just reactive, what we had to do in the first debate, how to react to this new immigration that is actually happening, but became actually, we could say, an active policy field for shaping strategically the future of Japan. So there we had a uh, general uh, change that happened. On the other side, contra-immigration or contra-opening up the labor market for non-highly skilled foreign workers was actually the view of immigrants as security risk. That's an old story in Japan. We have that actually since uh, the end of the Second World War, already the Korean immigrants were seen as a security risk in the first post-war years uh, due to several factors. However, specifically from the late 1990s onwards, this discourse became much stronger in Japan. What we had at the time was a kind of a moral panic concerning of crime and public security. So there was a huge debate that crime was increasing, public security was deteriorating in Japan, although some researchers think that actually this was more moral panic than a real development. And the second point which is really important is that this rising criminality was ascribed to immigration and especially to irregular immigrants. So the number of immigrants is increasing and this leads to the increase in uh, criminality in Japan. Again, if you look at the statistics, a huge debate among researchers, many think that actually you can't prove this uh, on the base of the statistics that really uh, foreigners in Japan lead to higher criminality uh, in recent years. Let me just to illustrate a little bit the point here. Uh, first point here, you see the share of all people over 65 between 1950 and 2030 in some more uh, advanced economies. And as you can see, up to the late 1980s, Japan is a young country. It has a very small share of all people. And then it could just increase very strongly from the late 1980s actually up to 2010, where it becomes kind of number one in the share of old people. This is due to the fact that Japan went through the first demographic transition very late between 1925 and 1950, which means that you have a huge uh, uh, number of people which, of course, started to move in the old age in the 1980s. So a very fast change in the demographic structure of Japan. If you look also more carefully, you actually will see that now the curve is still increasing, but it's slowing in its increase. So actually, we could say the demographic revolution has really happened in Japan between 1990 and 2010. It will still become older structurally, but not in the same speed as before. You can also see this in the people pyramid here. You see 1950 for Japan, really as we think a people pyramid should look. Uh, small <laughs> cohorts on the old age, very large cohorts in the young age, etc. You see in 2007, if you look at it, um, on the one side you see here really, this is the group of the uh, people who were born during the first demographic transition. They kind of reproduced, not totally. <laughs> so what we have now is a kind of a Christmas tree. And then you see later on from the 1970s the much lower fertility show this generation has not reproduced completely. And of course in the long term you see that in 2050 we will have a kind of an inverse pyramid, so small young generations and huge uh, old generations. And specifically you also see that in the late 1990s what really started was the government always thought that uh, fertility is low at the moment, but it will increase again. Because in surveys, people always said, yes, I want to marry and I want to have two kids. So they always expected, okay, they will marry later and they will have the kids. 
exactly. But that never happened. And only from the late 1990s onwards, the Institute for Population Survey started to actually check this into the forecasts. And of course, what happened was completely different long-term perspective for the development of the population. We should also note here, you see this very strong increase in old age people or the demographic change between 1990 and 2010 is really due to the demographic transition back in 1925 to 1950 and not due to the low fertility rate. The low fertility rate we have right now will have a huge demographic impact, but only in the future. Actually. And of course, what was here was the main problem was the question, how do we finance social security? Uh, this is one of the calculations what will happen in the long term, and you will see according to this calculation there will be a deficit of about 90 trillion yen. Uh, this is about right now the normal yearly budget of the government, so this is a huge number. Of course, this is just simply said, we keep the system how it's running now, we don't get a new finance, uh, financing of the whole system, how big will the deficit be? There are, of course, other possibilities to uh, decrease this deficit or to finance it differently from uh, the system right now. But still, this was really where people said we have a huge problem, we have a decreasing population, and we have a financial problem. And this means also what is interesting in this context is uh, that Japan, in international comparison, if you ask people if they want to accept immigrants, they have a rather open position. It's not often in research that this is said, as you can see here. This is a question, do you want to reduce or increase the number of immigrants in 1995? And you see, uh, basically all uh, more advanced economies, there's a large majority of the people who do not want an increase, who want to reduce the number of immigrants. However, surprisingly, you can see that in Japan, we have a rather open position regarding immigrants. And this is, I think, specifically also due to this debate we have in Japan on immigrants and also on the long-term dem demographic development we have in Japan. Uh, Specifically, also interesting is if you uh, look at surveys where people are first asked about the demographic development in the long term in Japan, and then in the end are asked on immigrants, a majority of people say, yes, we want immigrants, because, uh, of course, kind of, uh, the, the, let's say, the context in which they are asked makes them think that actually Japan needs immigrants. But there is also another possibility, that's the security issue. One more point before we come to the security issue is, however, to say you really can't stop the demographic change of Japan with immigrants. That's important to see. You see here, this is from the United Nations Population Division. Uh, it's models for Japan, calculations uh, from the late 1990s. You see the first is, if Japan has no uh, immigration at all, uh, according to this calculation, Japan, the population, will be about 105 million in the year 2050. Right now, the new forecasts actually see a much lower population in the year 2050. Still, now what it does here is calculated if Japan wants to keep its population constant, it would need every year 340,000 immigrants, which means in the year 2050 you have about 70 millions of immigrants, and then you have still this population of 127 million. However, this does not mean really to have uh, kind of changed your demographic development, because for this you would need at least to keep your working population constant. 
This means you need all of a sudden 650,000 immigrants every year. You have already 30 millions of immigrants in the year 2050 and a total population of 150 millions. Now, to really, let's say, keep your structure uh, constant would, of course, mean you let not your dependency rate drop onto a certain level. For example, here's calculated not below three. So for every people who is retired or still going to school, we have at least three people working. So this is a dependency rate of three. According to these calculations, you see you need 1.9 million of immigrants every year in Japan. You will have a total immigrant population of over 90 million and 230 million uh, total population. And of course, if you want to keep it constant, then you need not less than 10.5 million immigrants every year. You will have over 500 million of immigrants and over 800 million of people living in Japan. Of course, we don't know where they should live. But the point is, I really want to say is, as you can see, Immigration is not really the answer. The point is also, this is just calculations up to 2050. What we know from other research is to expect that immigrants, once they come into Japan, in the second or third generation latest, they start to behave like the Japanese, so they will have few children. So that means you need also, beyond 2050, new immigrants, and your population will rise and rise again. So there is not really a possibility over immigration alone <coughs> to get rid of this problem of demographic change. Now let's come to the second argument, uh, which was, of course, security, public security. Uh, what you see here on the, on the uh, left side is the, one of the campaigns of the Ministry of Justice, Rulo Mamote Koksai so please uh, keep to the rules do not employ irregular immigrants. Interesting thing in this security debate was really also that it was really irregular immigrants which were pointed at as cause for criminality because it was argued they come in, they break all the law as irregular immigrants, so maybe they break it even further. However, the research we have shows that we have foreign criminality in Japan, but most of this is kind of tourism criminality, we call it. So it's really maybe criminal groups coming into Japan to commit crime, which leave Japan again after a short time. It's not the irregular immigrants. The irregular immigrants, interestingly, most of them are really highly integrated and adapted to the Japanese society because they don't want to be detected, actually. And there you see also, there's another example, what you see, I think you most probably have been in Japan, have seen yourself, you also have also these uh, placards, etc., where actually it's really pointed out at foreigners as uh, the treat for criminality, etc., which is very strong in Japan. Now this you see also uh, in the international surveys that this discourse is how strong it is and how dominant it is in Japan. This is uh, the question, do you agree or not with this uh, quotation, immigrants increase crime rate in the year 2003. And what you can see here is that in Japan we have over 40% of the people, so nearly half of the people who strongly agree with it. So there's a huge discourse public on increasing criminality and on foreign residents, foreign immigrants being the reason, or one of the important reasons for increasing criminality. And this was, of course, a huge argument why you should not accept more immigrants in Japan during the second debate. So to simplify very much, we could say, on the one side, we had kind of a catastrophic scenario saying, if we don't accept foreign immigrants, then actually Japan will crumble down because the workforce will fall down, uh, we will have not be able to finance our social security, we can't keep the life standard. So this was the argument pro-immigration. And on the other side you had the argument, well, if we accept more immigrants, 
then public security will fall break down. We will have more criminality. Uh, there was also specific a debate, if you remember, in uh, 2006, we had uh, these problems in the banlieue in Paris uh, and other big French cities, and there was a huge debate in Japan. We actually said, if you accept more foreign that is coming to Japan, it's the same happening here in Japan. It's a huge problem. Also remember, in 2006, I was in Japan uh, at the Japanese Institute of Labor, and journalists came to me asking me about how good the German immigration policy is, which normally nobody in Germany would say. And I only realized later on that they were really comparing France, where you had the troubles, and Germany, where you seem to have no problems. So Germany is doing everything right in immigration policy. Maybe to give one more background information uh, on the, also the security issue, I think, is to see also the regional context. Um, what we have to see why people or policymakers are very nervous on immigration in Japan is there is a huge potential for migration in East Asia. It's much higher than in Europe. What you see here is uh, the basically two variables, where we would say, which would define this potential, which is the total fertility rate, so the demographic development on one side, and the economic differences between countries. And as you can see, in East Asia, we have a huge gap on the economic side between the general domestic product per capita in the countries and also in the total fertility rate. So there's a huge potential in East Asia for migration. And that's all one important reason why not only Japan, but basically all more advanced economies in East Asia have a very restrictive immigration policy because policymakers are very nervous on losing control of immigration. And this is even more the case, I would argue, because we have also another experience concerning immigration than we have in Europe, uh, which policymakers are well aware of, uh, what I would call the immigration trap. What you see here in blue is basically the European experience. On the vertical, you have the immigration level of non-highly skilled workers, so how large the immigration movements are. On the vertical, you have the economic development. So what actually the blue experience in Europe is, and in many countries, also by, for example in Japan, is uh, once you start with industrialization, your labor force becomes geographically mobile. They move out of farming into industrial jobs, etc. They become wage earners. So they become also potential immigrants, actually. So what normally happens is not migration between really non-developed, let's say, or very less developed countries, but those who are in the phase of industrialization. However, what we have later on is actually this turning point, you can see, uh, when we reach a certain point, immigration starts to recede of non-highly skilled workers and the country becomes an immigration country normally. And of course we can say this is the experience of uh, England, for example, but also of Italy or Spain or Portugal, etc. in recent years. So they went through this circle being first very important immigration countries and then becoming immigration countries in recent years. However, in Asia, policymakers are well aware that there is also another path, the one uh, in red, which is basically the development of the Philippines, where you have a very low economic development and you had a very strong increase in immigration, which was also positively, uh, actually, uh, the, the government of the Philippines made policies to uh, also increase immigration, which means today the Philippines and other countries in East Asia, they are in an immigration trap, which means the economy is structurally dependent 
on the money who is sent back by the immigrants. And of course, what people makes very nervous in East Asia is the question, what will be the future development of economies like Indonesia and the most of all People Republic of China? Because they are not over the hill, let's say. Of course, right now at the moment, we would expect that China is following the path of the green, uh, the blue path. But uh, still at the moment, uh, there are some... Uh, Informed uh, sources say maybe we have about 130 million workers in China who are potential emigrants, who are not really having a full-time job in China. So there's a huge potential in the region for immigration. So this is the background of the uh, debate on immigration. There was also a change in the main actors in the second debate in Japan. In the first debate, as we had seen, it was really policy, uh, ministries who were the main political actors, polit uh, particularly the uh, economic partnership, <laughs> economic planning agency, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Justice and the Ministry of Labor, who really dominated the policy making. In the second immigration debate, or during this period, and especially from 2004 to 2008, it really changed to LDP politicians and to members of the executive as new main actors. So we could say we really can see an influence of the political reforms we had. The main actors changed away from the uh, ministries to politicians and to members of the executive. And what is also here that Nippon Kederan become much more active, as I said before, the main reason here is that uh, now we had really structural dependency on foreign workers and not just you know, companies who can't pay good uh, small medium enterprises or companies who are in certain sectors which can't pay high wages, etc., but also really export industries like Canon, Toyota, etc. They were depending on foreign workers for their production in Japan. Now, there were a huge number of reform proposals, and I was just want to remember three uh, of them. The first was by a team around the Justice Vice Minister Taro Kono. Uh, so this was one of the new Vice Ministers from the Parliament in the Ministry of Justice. And he got from the Minister of Justice, uh, actually, the program to think about immigration policy with the committee and to come up with the reform plan. Now, what he uh, proposed then in the end, in 2006, was to end the exceptional rule for the Nikkei Jin, so they should be treated like every old foreign workers, and also to end part of the trainee programs, specifically those which were, in fact, guest worker programs. So to get away with these side door policies, how they are normally called. But on the other hand, to introduce new categories, middle categories, for qualified workers, how they were called. So not only highly qualified, but also for qualified workers in Japan. So to open up the labor market to a certain degree for qualified workers, and also to accept these foreign workers in the long term. So not only as guest workers, but they should be able to bring in the families and to stay in Japan. So also to change there, the policy. The background here was also that, in fact, we had already long-term immigration that happened from the late 19, or maybe second half of the 1990s onwards. More and more of the foreign workers stayed in Japan, and we, in fact, were long-term immigrants staying in Japan. So this was the fourth proposal that was made, which I think was very substantial, or one of them, uh, come on into three. The next justice minister, Jin and Nagasa, made their own proposal. Uh, this actually was the first Ministry of Justice, you can say, which really one of his policy fields was immigration policy. So he had really clear ideas once he became Ministry of Justice what to do. And he actually, we could say, wanted to transform Japan in an immigration state. So a state who has a proactive 
immigration policy. What he wanted to introduce, he wanted also to get rid of the special treatment of Nikkejin on the part of the training programs, but really introduce guest worker programs. And even for low-skilled French workers. So not depending on skills, just where the economy needs workers, we will introduce them as guest workers. Of course, there was here really guest workers, so a limitation of the duration they can stay in Japan. The next group then was around uh, of about 80 LDP parliamentarians under the leadership of Hidenao Nakagawa in 2008, which came up even with a more comprehensive plan, which was basically to transform Japan into an immigration nation. And what he proposed was Japan should accept up in the next 50 years 10 million long-term immigrants. So really bring in families, specifically young families, to Japan in view of the demographic change. So here we have not only, we could say, an immigration state, but Japan should become an immigration nation. And it was also said this should be the second opening of Japan after the major restoration. We, need, we are a new turning point in view of the demographic development. However, um, as you can imagine, nothing of this has been realized, actually. And the point is here is it moved away from the ministries to the politicians to make the policy or the policy proposal and to hold debate about the policy. But we also had inside of the LDP still a blockade on the whole issue, which means inside of the LDP we have very strong people viewing this issue from the demographic perspective especially those group of 80 parliamentarians around Nakagawa, but also part of the politicians who looked at the issue really from a security perspective. So we can say the LDP as an economically oriented and conservative party, to simplify it, was split still in the issue. So what in the end came out was we had no majority for a comprehensive reform of immigration majority among the politicians. We can see that also there is actually a policy commission, or there was at the time an immigration policy commission in the park of the LDP, which however never came up with a comprehensive reform proposal because there was a huge debate going on inside of this commission and the commission was split, so they always were kind of moving behind the discussion. We had also uh, actually to try to bring together all the ministries. In 2006, there was a project team of vice ministers of each ministry to think about migration to come up with a comprehensive plan. But there again, we had no consensus. The ministries still had completely different positions. And where we can also see however, what changed is that sometimes the ministry would change overnight the position in immigration policy. As I said before, we had Nagase, who all of a sudden came up as Minister of Justice, and this was the official position of the Minister of Justice now, we need guest worker programs. However, his successor in August 2007, Kunio Hatoyama, he returned clearly to a security perspective. So from the day the new minister moved in, guest worker programs were no longer on the agenda of the Ministry of Justice. So basically, really depending on who is the minister now, ministries can really change their position very strongly, but there's still not an overwhelming majority. Good, this is the question then, of course, we had some reforms still. What happened there then? Uh, let's come first to the entertainer visa. Now, the entertainer visa is one of these categories in the law which foreign workers are accepted. Officially, this was a visa category for artists, professional models, professional sportsmen, etc., who should come into Japan, was primarily for a short-term stay, and work in Japan and earn some money. 
However, what happened since the late 1970s is that most immigrants who entered Japan with an entertainer visa were women who were de facto working in the red light district in Japan. So there was a clear discrepancy what was written in the law and where these people were actually working in Japan. Also because the law is really quite specific. For example, it says how big the establishment has to be, that such a foreign entertainer can work there, that it has to have a stage, it has to have a room where people can change, etc. And of course, if you look at the most established in the red light district, it doesn't fulfill uh, these qualifications. Important, interesting is this was never an important topic in debates about immigration policy. Everybody knew actually that there is a gap between the official regulation and the real immigration and where people are working, but this was never a topic in the discussions. However, in 2005, quite sudden, new restrictive policy concerning entertainer visa were introduced. The background was that human trafficking became an important topic on the international agenda. So the European Union, but also the United States, started to introduce policies on human trafficking. And most of all, the United States introduced a, we could say, a rather aggressive policy. They started to uh, publish a trafficking in person report where they would categorize countries into three layers. Those countries who did do enough against human trafficking, those who do the not enough but were still okay, let's say, and the third ones who did not do enough. And if a, country, if a country was put into the third layer, uh, it was actually possible or the foreign uh, minister in, in the United States could take some special measures against this country. Now what happened is that most countries were in the second category. So not really good examples, let's say, of policy making concerning human trafficking, but still not in the third category. Among them also Japan. And this was newly criticized by several groups saying this is a kind of catch-all category and specifically Japan, due to this entertainer visa uh, policy, should be put into the third category because actually Japan is kind of giving official visas to people who are in fact working as sex workers and which sometimes become structurally dependent kind of uh, slaves of these establishments, etc. So what happened then in 2004, the United States started, changed their policy, they introduced a third category, those countries in the second layer which were on a watch list, which means if you were on the watch list, you had to do something new in the next year, otherwise you would get into the third layer in the coming year, exactly. And that happened to Japan. Japan all of a sudden happened to be in 2004 on the watch list. This was, of course, in Japan not very... Um, amused about, because at the time Japan tried to get uh, into the Security Council, Japan had human uh, security as one important foreign policy goals, and now for certain it took the risk to be put into the third layer by the United States uh, as a country like, you can imagine, which other countries like North Korea or Burma, etc. are in there normally. So this was not really what Japan wanted to happen. So what happened then was a very fast reform as part of the foreign policy to a commission in the cabinet secretariate where they introduced much more restrictive regulation concerning uh, this entertainer visa. And you can see here this had a huge influence. Um, in red you have actually the number of people who are coming into the country with a working visa. Uh, in green is the people who are coming into the country with an entertainer visa. 
So you can really see this is what the by far largest group of people coming into Japan with the working visa, where people with an entertainer visa. Uh, and you can also see in blue uh, the most important country of uh, people coming in with an entertainer visa were the Philippines. This specifically because in the Philippines there was a kind of official test system. If you pass the test, then you would get a certificate that you are an entertainer, and the Japanese government will give you then an entertainer visa. So uh, working together, kind of. Um, what you can see then in 2005, of course, this number starts to drop hugely with a new introduction, and basically, specifically, people coming from the Philippines with an entertainer visa are getting very clear uh, back to a very low level, and then generally also people coming in with a working visa are decreasing very strongly due to the new regulation. The second partial reforms we had was in the part of economic partnership agreements and foreign health workers. Um, there has been new bilateral free trade agreements and economic partnership agreements, how they are called normally in Japan. We can say this is since 2001 a new instrument in the foreign trade policy of Japan. Before this period, Japan was actually always following a multilateral foreign trade policy. Specifically in recent years, we can say we have a kind of huge increase of such agreements in East Asia. Some authors even speak of an FDA stampede happening in East Asia. And Japan was, of course, due to China and Korea, who were signing a lot of disagreements, and a huge pressure also to sign agreements with other countries to preserve its regional position as an economic power. Now, what happened then uh, in to the early 21st century was that some Southeastern countries started during the negotiation with Japan to bring in the wish, if this is really an economic partnership agreement, and not only free trade agreement, we want also to include uh, foreign health workers, that Japan should open up its foreign health workers, uh, its labor market for foreign health workers. Again, what happened here is that the, the regulation advisory consult on cabinet level decided, yes, we will put that. We want this economic partnership agreements at all costs, let's just say. So, again, we accept also health workers. Now, the agreements that we have today, they are very restrictive. We speak about 1,000 health workers from Indonesia and from the Philippines coming to Japan. They have to pass after two or three years the national health worker uh, exam for being able to really stay on in Japan, which is very difficult. Barely nobody has done that until now. Still important is this maybe uh, for one reason important reform in immigration policy, because this is the first time Japan has signed an international contract concerning immigration. Up to this, basically immigration policy in Japan was only lateral. It was Japan deciding who can come in with which visa. Now for the first time we have a bilateral agreements where it's actually written in agreements who can come in to which uh, visa, etc. So there is a change, uh, much more cooperation in here, although the numbers are very small. So let me reach the concluding remarks to sum up. I think if we look at these political reforms from 1997 to 2001, we can say, yes, it had influences in the immigration policy. We have new actors, so politicians and members of the executive are taking now a leading role, or took a leading role between 2005 and 2008 especially, regarding immigration policy. But what we see still is an internal blockade. Like the ministries before, also the LDP at the time as the main government party was actually really split concerning immigration. We had huge proposals, uh, but they were not really successful. 
But we can also see how the policy whole uh, policy project process has changed. Also, is if we look where this proposal were tried to bring in. Like Nagase, he introduced his proposal of guest worker programs at the meeting of the Deregulation Council on the cabinet level. So you see really what you try to do now is you try to get on the cabinet level to get their top-down decision and then let it move down again to the ministry to implement the decision. So that is really where we could say we have a change in the policy process, although he was not successful with his uh, proposal. The same happened also with the Nakagawa group, which uh, recommended to have 10 millions of immigrants up to 2005 because it was directly submitted to the prime minister. So also there is a try to get around the ministry directly on the executive level. However, there is a potential, we could say, that this is top-down decision-making, but this has only happened in the cases of an overriding goal in other policy fields, as we saw before. So in the question of the entertainer, because this was really foreign policy, uh, Japan was basically losing its face if it would have gone on the third tire uh, in the trafficking in person report of the United States, or uh, foreign trade policy in the case of the EPA, yes, we accept foreign health workers, although to a very small degree than, uh, in the end, because this is such an important goal for our foreign trade policy. So still, in the field of immigration policy, however, this has not happened. So if we look a little bit more to end up in a general view of the results, we can say, I think, first if we look at immigration policy in Japan, um, often it's said that the immigration policy in Japan is based on ethnic nationalism. This is specifically also said about the case of Nikkei <laughs> and the policy concerning Nikkei Also there we have a very complex uh, policy process which led to this exemption of the Nikkei In the beginning it was not a labor market perspective which one led to the acceptance of Nikkei I had not time to go into details. But I think what's important to see is the immigration policy is not formed by ethnic nationalism simply. It's formed by ideational fragmentation. This is really what brings on uh, the whole policy process and which makes it so complicated. Which also I would say if Japan really had you know, a clear view on ethnic nationalism, it would have maybe also a clear strategy regarding immigration policy. But it does not have that. That's actually even the bigger problem. And the second point I would say in concerning immigration policy, we have also institutional fragmentation in the policy process. So there are different actors who look at from completely different perspectives at the immigration issue, who are often also not talking to each other and have completely different proposals how this should happen. So I will go as far as maybe to say concerning immigration policy, Japan, in the meaning of one single coherent actor, or the Japanese state as one single coherent actor, does not exist actually. What comes out is a kind of a policy which is even not the common denominator of all policy actors involved. It's kind of really up to Guzen, he could say, who can move in with which idea at what point in the policy-making process, which makes also not foreseeable to a certain degree what will be the policy, immigration policy in Japan in the future. If we look at this more general in advanced economies, um, lately there has been a focus in the research on immigration policy actually on the gap between the policy in many countries and reality. And there, specifically, that the policy is very restrictive, but de facto immigration is still happening. So why is this the case? This was, uh, and often this has been said it's due to external factors, like human rights machine, human rights regime, or economic interest groups, which kind of impede or uh, are able to influence the immigration policy. Now I think 
the case study of Japan would maybe leave us also that this is not so much external actors, but it's actually state internal, the problem, this fragmentation we have internally. And actually, even if you speak, for example, with Nippon Kaidan, they are very frustrated because they have not real influence in immigration policy, because they say, well, we have good connections to the METI or METI today, but we have no connections, basically, to the Ministry of Justice. So there we really don't know to talk to who, and they're not listening to us, because they are also looking at this whole issue not from a point of view of labor market, of economic development, but from a point of view of security. So there's a different view. And the last point I would like to make, Japanese politics. Uh, there was, of course, a huge debate going on in research on political reforms, 1997-2001, if it really led to new system or not. Uh, I think I would sum up this led to new opportunities. Sometimes we can really see there's a top-down decision-making, but it's really only realized in rare cases of very high relevance, I would say. So generally, in the case of immigration policy, it was not the case, and that's why we had a huge debate on immigration policy, but no comprehensive reform. Thank you very much for your...